You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Well, welcome back to another episode. I am your Concierge Minister, Kumar Dixit, and I'm glad to have you here with me, and I have a very special guest that I am thrilled to introduce you to, someone that I've known since I was probably 13 or 14, maybe, um, 13 or 14 years old. Would you say that's right, Mark? I think that's right. I'm trying to remember, you know, the original location, maybe the youth room down the hall, like (laughs) it may have even been like like, were you in Divnik's class? I was. Oh, yeah. Younger than me. Yeah, we had like like Bible classes in the morning, and it was yeah. it was good times, man. I've been watching you, and you know, after high school, for the most part, you know, everyone splits up, and I've seen you a few times here and there, and um, and you and I've stayed in contact. But I heard about your book, and I was like, I really am interested. And then, luckily, you sent me a copy of your book, and I apologize because I I saved like. 17 bucks, but um, <laughs> um, it, it's worth any dollar amount, really. It's, it's a really fantastic book. It's called The Wisdom of Your Heart by Mark Allen Shelsky. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is exciting both to talk about topics I'm interested in and to hang out with you uh, at, as we're both now old men. Oh, man, isn't that crazy? Like that back in the day, we both had hair right. and, it, and it was dark colored. Right. We both had hair and dark, uh, dark colored hair. We both had attitudes. We both, <laughs> we both were pretty sure we knew what was up with everything. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, here we are now, multiple jobs and children and life experiences later. And huh. that's right. I'm just like a broken man because my kids have broken <laughs> me. You know, like, what, right. do you, what do you do? So, well, I want to jump right in because as I was reading your book, I did, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know about you. And, and one of the, the, the things in your book that you kind of talk about is, in, in many ways, you describe kind of having like a professional and personal breakdown almost simultaneously. Can, can yeah. you take me back to that and, and kind of describe what that was about? Sure. So the, the short version is that um, a lot of things formed the cocktail of my life. And those things kind of came to a head at one point under high pressure, which is kind of how life crisis works, right? Yeah. So I'm the first child of a family. I'm an adopted child. Those things tend to mediate towards being type A, driven, performance-oriented. I was raised in a uh, church community that was, on the one hand, loving and warm, but on the other hand, um, somewhere towards the end of the spectrum of fundamentalist. And mm-hmm. so there was a high level of of concern for proper behavior and proper belief. And um, my dad was a pastor, so I was a PK. And that then brought another level of evaluation and performance need uh, to what was already a part of my temperament, my personality. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I was 11, my dad unexpectedly died in an accident. And that was sort of the defining trauma of my life, that mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden, my life was thrown in a, into upheaval. And what we do when we experience that kind of trauma, uh, especially as kids, is we process that through a trauma response that builds coping mechanisms into our little hearts and minds. And those coping Mm -hmm. mechanisms at the time are protective, Mm -hmm. right? And so at that point in my life, it was things like 
these feelings are really overwhelming and they're really scary. Uh, I don't want to feel them. Telling people what's really going on in my heart and my mind isn't safe. I have big questions. My dad is the past. My dad was the pastor and my dad was killed. Like, how could God allow that? Can I talk about that in my community? No, I can't. That's not safe. Mm-hmm. Right. And so all of these ideas are bouncing around in my, in my head as an 11 year old. And what we do repeatedly uh, becomes a habit. The habits that we live into repeatedly become the shape of our character. And so fast forward down the line, I'm 20, I'm 25, I'm 30, I'm 35. And uh, what you end up with is a very driven person whose uh, primary sense of identity is defined by performance and who is very closed off from his own feelings and who has defined his life in a way where he is not needing to be authentic about what's going on in his inner world with anyone. And so when you add those things up, that is a recipe uh, for uh, emotional and interpersonal danger. And what happened for me was that I, uh, through the circumstances of the community I was a part of, ended up being invited to be senior pastor of the church I was a part of, probably 10 years sooner than I should have been. And because I had all of these commitments of performing well and being the best that I could be as a pastor and being the best that I could be as a husband and being the best as I could be as a new father and all those tapes brought a level of, of uh, burden obligation, they were incompatible. The picture I had of what it meant to be a great pastor and the picture I had of what it meant to be a great husband were incompatible. Mm-hmm. I could not be both. And the pressure mounted up and a number of things happened in our community that were very, that were really overwhelming. And the fruit of that was that I found myself for the first time in my life, unable to perform. Mm -hmm. I was not able to do the things I had said are necessary for me to be who I am. And I began to drop things. I began to fail in ways I had never failed before. I'd always been a good student. I'd always gotten a lot of accolades for being great at the things I put my hands to. Uh, And all of a sudden that was not the case. I was Uh dropping things and failing at obligations and missing appointments. And it was like uh, a weak dam uh, cracking slowly under the pressure and water beginning to shoot through in little sprays. And then all of a sudden just falling as the water behind it gushed. Let me, let me start, stop you right there. Um, As the water is coming and seeping through the cracks, are you aware that there's a problem or are you just going on with life just thinking that's just a whole bunch that's what life is uh both both of those things so i was aware that things in my life were not working mm-hmm. my marriage wasn't the kind of marriage i wanted it to be it certainly wasn't the vibrant marriage i had been promised that i'd been told i would get by honoring god mm-hmm. um you know People in my ministry weren't always uh, compliant or wanting to do the things the way that I wanted them to do. And I had several significant and important leaders leave the church. And in the debriefing of that, they were leaving because of me, not because I was an immoral person, not because uh, we disagreed theologically, but because their sense was that I wasn't capable of letting them be themselves. I wasn't Mm. capable of letting them have freedom to exercise their ministry. They had to run my script. And, and when I saw that happen with people that I loved and I cared about, I knew that things weren't working, but the only toolbox I had was work harder. 
-hmm. It was the only set of tools. Give me a book. I can take a course. I can read this. I can master this field of information. I can, I can put in extra hours. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I had a conversation with my wife that the script was the same over the years. Mm -hmm. She's frustrated and upset about some need not being met or me failing to meet some obligation. She's telling me about that. I get defensive and argue. We end up crying because neither of us are getting what we want. And I say at the end, it's just, it's just, there's too much work after this next project is done. After we get past Easter, after we get past this membership class launch, after we get past this next thing that we're going to do, I promise I'll balance everything out and it'll be good then. And so I was trying to solve the problem with the very same set of tools that had gotten me into the problem. So it, it, you, you do a really good job explaining, you know, and I don't think you use these words in your book, but, you know, that you were emotionally repressed. Yeah. You know, that, that there was definitely, you know, um, you being stunted emotionally, partially due to your childhood, your dad's trauma, um, being adopted. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why. So you've yeah. never really been able to kind of just lay your feelings out and kind of examine them. So what what happened where, what, what was that, that low point that kind of forced you to like, face that all, all at once. So there was a, a period of time where things got really bad. It was very clear to me that this wasn't working. As I projected into the future, I could see uh, myself losing the things that mattered to me. I could see myself being asked to resign from my ministry. I could see myself even losing the capacity to be in ministry. I could see mm. myself losing my family. I could see those things happening and there was nothing between here and there except time. Mm -hmm. Nothing I could do to stop that. And because my sense of identity was so tied up in performance and I was finding myself in this place where I simply couldn't perform, I ended up in a deep functional depression. And uh, so what I mean by functional depression, um, a lot of people have the image of a depressed person being someone who's sort of laid out on the couch and they don't have the motivation to get up and go to work. Yeah. So what that looked like in my life as a high performer is that I would start cranking the gears to get everything in order for the weekend for church mm -hmm. on you know Wednesday. And I would work my rear end off to get everything in order to make sure every dot was, was dotted. Every person had the resources they needed. My sermon was the best it could possibly be. I would go to church. I would leave it all out on the field doing my best impression of a great pastor. Uh -huh. And then I would go home and I would get into bed and I wouldn't be a functional human being until the next Wednesday. Uh -huh. And which means Sunday through Wednesday, yeah. your, your family had very little from you. Right. They had little from me. My wife at that point in time is parenting, essentially single parenting, two small children. Mm -hmm. um, I'm expecting her to somehow help me to meet my emotional needs, to meet my physical needs, to do the things that will help me feel better about myself mm -hmm. so that I can get through this. She's under enormous pressure herself. Uh, now she's parenting, single parenting two kids, plus what basically amounts to an adult child half the week who's not able to manage his responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And that ends up doing great, even further damage to my relationship with her. Yeah. And so as I'm in this season, it's just obvious that this can't continue. About that same time, I ran into two different 
uh, men who were very significant in my story, who uh, both of them were former pastors. One was a therapist. Both of them had their own stories of profound trauma um, way beyond what I've experienced and had done the work of facing that and going to therapy and, you know, weeping their tears and hundreds of pages of journals and all of that stuff. And both of those guys separately, uh, I had become friends with, and they could see through me. They could see the image I was projecting wasn't real. And they mm. both in separate ways said to me, uh, Mark, you have a choice. You're, you're a gifted guy. You're very competent, but you can't solve this problem by yourself. And so you have a choice. You're going to keep doing what you're doing now, and it's going to end up killing you, taking away all the things you love, or you're going to get help. Mm. Those are those are your only options. Mm -hmm. And um, they were gracious and they were kind, but they were real clear with me. And uh, one of them, the therapist, actually made a, refer a referral for me to a therapist that I could see and helped that process get going. And uh, they walked with me through that whole season and gave me a sense of hope that I didn't have myself. I mm. didn't have a matrix or an understanding to see a way through this problem. Mm -hmm. But they said to me, we, we know how this works. We know what it looks like. You can come out the other side. Uh, you're not a horrible failure as a human being. God loves you. We love you. You just need to attend to some stuff. Yeah. You've got you've got a warehouse full of garbage that you've never taken out. <laughs> and you need to do that. You need to take out the garbage so that this air can be clean again. So what what's one of the the biggest surprises about yourself that you discovered? You know, I mean, I know you've been on a long journey, but um it, what what is something that you were just like, holy smokes, you know, I I have to admit to this. This is this is something that I I am, and I'm not really. Yeah. Yeah. That, that experience you're talking about actually happened multiple times in therapy. Mm. Probably the most painful part of therapy for me would be that moment when my therapist would repeat something back to me that I said, just to make sure that she heard me correctly. And then she would bring up something that I had said, you know, a month ago or weeks ago about my commitments, who I want to be in the world, what mm -hmm. I believe about myself. Mm -hmm. And she would just hold those two things sort of side by side. Wow. And I'd have to like, look at that and realize that I have an image of who I am. Mm -hmm. And then there are things I do in ways that I relate to people. And those things aren't necessarily connected at all. Mm -hmm. And my mm -hmm. sense of identity is rooted in this image, but these are the things I'm actually doing. Mm -hmm. These are the ways I'm treating the people that I care about, you know? And so there were multiple of those, you know, I thought I was a great listener. Nope, not, that's not true. I, I was not, mm -hmm. you know, I thought that, um, I thought that I did a really good job, uh, making sure that, you know, in my capacity as a pastor, I thought I did a really good job making sure that as people came in and volunteered, they were equipped and they were supported and they had all the resources they need to be successful. Uh -huh. Well, it turns out that what I was really doing was I was giving them an ironclad script to run. Yeah, yeah. So that they would do it exactly the way I wanted them to do it so that success would look like what I had predefined. So a, a little bit of micromanaging in order to keep control of the, 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 the narrative. 
Right, exactly. I yeah. mean, it, spiritually, this is this may be a strong word, but spiritually, I think what I was doing was infantilizing people, hmm. right? We grow by trying stuff, by learning, by failing and trying again. That's how we grow in every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I, along with many pastors, have yeah. a strong vision of what they want the thing to look like. Yeah. And those things feel incompatible, you know? And so I would bring people in and set them up for success. And what that really meant was set them up to run my script, mm -hmm. you know? And so mm -hmm. it turned out, well, why is that? Why was I doing that? Well, because... I have this sickness in my heart where my sense of identity was a, attached to my performance. And because I was unconscious of that, I had allowed that sickness to spread to the way I did ministry. Mm -hmm. So then I was taking value identity from the success of my church. And I think this is, I think this is one of the biggest problems with ministers in general and probably other professionals. And that is um, we equate personal success with professional success yeah and because our lives are so intertwined it's very hard to say am i happy with what my life is outside of work hey guys it's kumar dixit your concierge minister i just wanted to interrupt for a moment and just invite you to pray with me or have me pray for you you know, sometimes people just don't have the right words. Sometimes you're just so overwhelmed. You haven't prayed in a long time and you're like, man, I really need someone to pray for me. Do not hesitate to contact me at concierge You'll see on the front page, a tab for prayer, click on it, send your prayer request. It goes to a group of people who are praying for you and I will continue to pray for you as well. So head over there to concierge I wanna pray for you and click on the website Trust me, we're covering you in prayer. Yeah. Well, that those those work metrics are so easy to look at, you know, and in the context mm -hmm. of church, the things that are countable are not things that talk about spiritual health at all, mm -hmm. but they're the things we can count. We can yeah. count people's attendance. We can count how frequently they come. We can count how much they give. We can count how many new programs we got out, rolled out this calendar year. We can count that stuff. And the truth is that those things have nothing to do with the health, spiritual health of a community or a person. Yeah. And many times, in fact, contribute to unhealth, mm -hmm. right? But I was not able, it was all unconscious to me. I was not aware of that. Um, even, you know, you talked about things I learned about myself, even, you know, coming to recognize that in some sense, in some way, part of my introverted personality is also a coping mechanism mm. that I can be by myself and feel safe and secure. Uh, when I'm out and about with other people, I don't have control of what they're going to do. I don't know what's going to happen. That doesn't feel safe. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so many parts of who I am, I felt like were new to me. I, I was disconnected from my inner world. Mm -hmm. And so it was the process of therapy, extended therapy, and all the things that go with that, that made me stop and listen to what was happening in my body, my mind, my heart, my spiritual journey, and realize that I, I had ended up in a place where I was not who I wanted to be, where I was not what I believed I was called to be, uh, and certainly where I was, was not a place I wanted to stay. Wow. Wow. Your, your book is filled with a lot of like one-liner zingers that I underlined. So I want to talk to you about a couple of themes that I found really interesting that, that kind of come up in the book. And, and one of them is the idea that God has a full range of emotions. Hmm. That was kind of a, 
an eye-opener for me. One of the things that you say is that just if God is good and gracious and compassionate and forgiving and loving, then we have to also accept the fact that God also has the opposite sides of those emotions, that he is angry, that he can be jealous, that he can be frustrated. Um, and, and one of the things that I think in Christianity is that we typically don't admit that idea that if we're created in the image of God, then in truly we're going to be inheriting all of those attributes of God. Mm. And for me, that was a huge, huge piece to kind of come to realize, realize like, yes, yes, just as God is angry and um, I'm angry. And, and at that level, I have to do something about that as well. I don't know if you want to speak on that a little bit. Sure. I, I, I feel like this is a topic that's a theological necessity that mm. comes from a number of other commitments we have. Okay. So the first, the first commitment is we all, we all want a God that's loving. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if God is loving is, is, but we want, when we read harsh passages in scripture where God is, is, is angry or when scripture says God is jealous, our natural read is to say that God's anger or jealousy are anthropomorphisms right? That these are human things and we project them onto God. Mm -hmm. I get that. I, I totally get that. Yeah. But here's the problem. If God's jealousy and anger are anthropomorphisms, God's love must also be, mm. right? Yeah. Unless yeah. we're talking about, unless we're talking about God's love being something that has no affection attached to it. Yeah. If, if we're redefining love for God to mean some kind of contractual commitment to us, mm -hmm then that's fine. But of course, that's not what you and I understand love to be. Right. And, and when we talk about, you know, God loving us or Jesus loving us or teaching our children that Jesus loves you, we really do mean God has affection for you. <laughs> and so if God, if we're willing to let go of God's affection, okay, that's fine. Yeah. But if we're not willing to let go of God's affection, we have to also then make room for the possibility that God has these other emotions. And that raises the second issue. Because you and I, as human beings, are mostly familiar with, let's take the two we've mentioned, jealousy and anger, we're familiar with those emotions being violent and destructive. Uh -huh. We're familiar with a, the idea of a jealous boyfriend who does right, really right. hurtful, destructive things. And of course, that is not in keeping with the spirit of Christ. It's not in keeping with our understanding of God. So God must not have that kind of jealousy. Well, what we're, what we're having a problem with is the idea of separating emotion from sin. And that goes back to a cultural issue that we have, uh -huh. where we, as children of the Enlightenment, and before that, children of Western theology that has deep Platonic roots, we're used to the idea that emotions are really not ideal. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. At the very best, an emotion is sort of like an overabundance, an excess of, of feeling. At the worst, it's temptation. It's leading you astray. It's a bad thing. Yeah. And in the church, we've even theologized that and said that certain emotions are sinful for you uh -huh. to even have them. Right. And so, of course, if God is perfect, then God can't sin. And if emotions are sinful, then God has no emotions problem solved. Yeah. But that God you just described is a God incapable of love. Uh -huh. So if you want to hold on to a God that's capable of love, then you have to say, okay, maybe my understanding of emotions is wrong. Yeah. Maybe being made in God's image, 
I have emotions because God has them. Now, I don't mean to say that God has glands and electrical circuits in his brain that causes the emotional responses that you and I have. I don't mean uh-huh. to say that. Yeah. I mean to say that we've been created with a biological ability to have the kind of interpersonal responses that God has. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so when God is jealous, what does that mean? Does that mean he's going to key your car? No. Uh-huh. Jealousy in its heart is the emotion that something that rightfully belongs to you is wrongfully being taken away. Uh-huh. And you respond uh-huh. to that. Oh, and, that's and a great in, definition. Right. And in fact, that's why the jealous boyfriend is a, a motif that we have. Like in a, if you're, if you're in a committed relationship, mm-hmm. you have something shared that does belong to you, the commitment yeah. of your relationship. Right. And if one party in that relationship goes out and cheats, there is a violation that occurs. And that mm-hmm. violation, it, it, it brings up real feelings in us. Well, God, God does not have the kind of feelings we're talking about where he's going to be driven to not be God's own self. Right. Emotions are never going to push God out of God's character. Mm-hmm. But God can have an interpersonal reaction to the experience of having what is rightfully belonging to God taken away in a wrongful manner. Mm-hmm. And that's when God talks about, when God says that God is jealous or when God is angry. Like this is, you know, this is another emotional reaction we all have. It's one that we're kind of allergic to in Christianity. Uh, why are we allergic to it? Because we're used to people who are angry doing destructive things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. But anger is not in itself bad. Anger is a God-given motivation. What is it? Well, in the simplest terms, I define it as the emotional response that you have when you, put a little asterisk right here, have been violated. Uh-huh. And that little asterisk is just to notice that sometimes you're violated and you're angry because of the violation. And sometimes you think you've been violated and you really haven't been, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And that's part of emotional maturity is being able to parse those things out. You know, yeah. when my daughter uh, disobeys me and I'm angry about it is, it, is my anger because she's done something dangerous or is my anger because my pride has been injured? Right. Right. And if it's about my pride, it's not okay for me to take my anger out on her because my pride is what's injured, right? So you begin to parse those things out. So God can certainly have the interpersonal reaction of feeling what we call anger when there's violations happening to the the ones that God loves. Of course, of course God can. God's heart is big enough to do that. And this is the trick for us. God's heart is big enough to do that without having God's essential character pushed out of the way. Right, right. And I I think that's, Boy, that's so beautifully described. So that that leads me to then, how do emotions illustrate or actually teach us um, some lessons about ourselves? Like as you get in tune with your emotions, like like how do you use that to actually teach you how you should respond? Sure. So first a principle that allows what you just described to happen. And then we can talk about some of the applications. So the principle uh, that is important for us, which most of us didn't learn in in church, is that um, emotions in and of themselves uh, have no moral valence. They're neither good nor bad. They are natural reactions that occur in your body and your brain to triggers that happen either in your circumstances or in your inner world. 
right? Something happens in your heart or your thoughts and you're triggered or something happens in the world around you and you're triggered. And yeah. that is that is not morally good or bad. It's not righteous or sinful. It's not an indication of, of maturity as a human being. It's not a gendered thing. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as a gendered emotion. Mm -hmm. Everybody has emotions. Everybody has them all. There may be, you know, culturally, uh, culturally held ways that it's acceptable for people to express emotion, mm -hmm. but that's different than saying emotion is gendered. You know, mm -hmm. what we think in our culture of as anger is masculine and sadness is feminine. Yeah. Women are allowed to cry. Men aren't. Men are allowed to be angry and even sometimes are affirmed for being angry and mm -hmm. women are not. Well, right. that's ridiculous. That's a cultural imposition. Every human being feels anger. Every human being feels sadness. So the first principle is that emotions are just a part of having a body and a brain and a nervous system. Mm -hmm. And if you have a healthy body, brain, and nervous system, you're going to have emotional responses. Mm. So then once you accept that that's true, it means that the emotion you feel, whether it's what we call a good emotion like happiness or whether it's a bad emotion like anger, in itself isn't the end of the thing. Mm -hmm. feeling anger doesn't mean that you sinned feeling anger just means you're having a natural reaction in your brain and your body to something that's happened or that you imagine has happened mm -hmm. right then the next thing is if you realize that's the case if you realize that your emotion is simply data yeah telling you about the state of your body mm -hmm. then data is available to be studied right right you know so mm -hmm. in therapy I began to learn over the course of many months that there was this particular feeling that I had in my gut, in my stomach, that would happen that for years and years and years, I had assumed was just stomach issues. You mm -hmm. know, I'd eaten too much junk food. I'd, you know, I ate too late last night before I went to bed, something mm -hmm. like that. I had a jug of Tums in my office drawer because this happened so often. So there was a, a literally physical manifestation taking place in your body. Yeah. All like this, mm. this clenching tightness in my gut. Mm. And over the course of therapy, I was shown by my therapist that that feeling always seemed to precede uh, conversations that I was anxious about mm -hmm. where I feared there would be conflict. Mm -hmm. And then I began to notice that and pay attention. And sure enough, that feeling in my gut was like a prophet to me. Mm -hmm. Every single time I felt it, I could look at my calendar and go, oh, I'm meeting with so-and-so mm -hmm. -so today. And I already know that's going to be a hard conversation. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, I, there's this thing I've been needing to tell Christina and I don't want to tell her because she's not going to be happy about it every single time, mm -hmm. right? Because emotions are always experienced in the body before our poor old brain catches up and knows what's happening. Right. And so you have this data, something's happening in my body. What do I do with that? And in, in that illustration I shared with you from my therapist, she was able to help me say, oh, look, notice what's happening. Let's figure out what it's attached to. Oh, it means you're anxious about conflict. Well, let's talk about why that is. And all of a sudden I'm learning something about my inner life. I'm feeling this, this nervousness, this anxiety uh, that I didn't know even was anxiety. I thought I was totally fine. But of course, I'd have those conversations and I wouldn't have them well, or I'd be snappy, or I'd be judgmental, or I'd try and control the conversation so it would have a certain outcome. Mm -hmm. I was doing all of that to manage how I was feeling, even though I had no idea I was feeling anxiety. I thought I was just sick to my stomach. One of the things that I really appreciate about the book, it's, it's kind of a journey. 
So we we kind of see you having this like meltdown. We see you throughout the 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 story of, of what you're discovering and what you're learning about yourself, and then putting into you know some some key markers of what is going to help you kind of grow. Um, I, I want to know on the other side of things, you know, of, I, I know the story is not over, but at least we're, you know, yeah. partly through there, right? So how, how have people reacted to, um, to you now? Have they seen a change in you? Um, how have people reacted to you professionally? And how has your marriage um, impacted? Yeah. It's uh, the journey continues. Uh, the story that's in the book um, you know, covers a span of probably 10 years. And, you know, so where I find myself now is um, a lot of uh, the things I talk about in the book are more intuitive to me now. Mm. Like I came to this story of emotions as a person who is deeply disconnected from emotions and a person who is locked in his, in his brain. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I'm going to try and understand emotions, you know, like yeah. this is not this is not a book of art about emotions. This is not interpretive dance about emotions. This is an analysis of emotions, which is a very, you know, me way of doing this. Mm -hmm. But it's but it's what I did, you know. And so I, I understand these things now and they've sunken from my head into my heart. I have a more intuitive understanding of these things, like when something happens like the experience I described now. I'm more able, more likely, not always, but more likely to catch it in the moment, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm able in the moment to notice, oh, I feel this coming up. I feel this anger energy arising in me. Is that helpful in this moment right now? Nope. Is there something going on that requires it? Like, is there someone being abused in this room and that yeah. anger energy would be constructive for me to use? Nope, that's mm -hmm. not happening. Oh, okay. So I have some time to hold on to that. And sometimes I can get it right away. Sometimes I have to go back and journal uh, through, you know, through the process, but less and less. Mm -hmm. This, this uh, fluency in understanding our body and our brain is a skill set. Mm -hmm. And it's a skill set that I didn't have because of my, you know, my community, my upbringing, my temperament just wasn't equipped to do it. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever sat me down and said, Mark, this is what sadness means. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. no one ever, that never, that kind of conversation never happened in my life. No one ever said to me, uh, when you're angry, this is what that means. You're not a bad person for feeling anger. Here's some constructive ways to deal with your anger. Never had that conversation. Yeah. In fact, had the opposite. Don't right. be angry. You're a Christian man. You should never be angry. You're a pastor. Being angry is a violation of your calling. That's mm -hmm. the lesson I got. Right. You know, and so it took a long time to get from head to heart. Yeah. And that changed some things about me. Um, it changed. Well, I mean, it changed a lot about me. Uh, the way that I am in my marriage, the way that I am in my work, the way that I am with friends is markedly different. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe not always, you know, better, but, um, I am capable of accessing tools for reconciliation that I did not have before. And so when stuff happens, that's not good, I am able to not be overthrown by it. I'm able to deal with it. The visual fruit is that my life is slower. Mm -hmm. I do less things than I mm -hmm. used to do. The way that I do ministry is completely different. And that probably has had the biggest visual difference because in this process of healing, um, I successfully grew my church to a quarter of its original size. Hmm. And uh, that 
was part of this story. Yeah. Because what I learned was I had built a church of people who loved the performance. I had built a church of people who wanted to come in every week and have a perfect experience that had been well-crafted where Mm -hmm. every variable was controlled. Yeah. And when I stopped doing that, when I stopped letting people, when I stopped scripting it and, and began to let people have authentic experiences, and some of those experiences were messy, and some of those experiences were theologically incorrect, and yeah. some of those experiences, you know, had relational consequences where you had to work through stuff. Mm-hmm. When I began talking about, like, when my sermons shifted from, I have an answer that I'm going to give you with clarity to... Mm-hmm. I have an experience I'm going to share with you and I believe God's in it with me, but it doesn't wrap up with a shiny bow at the end. Mm-hmm. When that happened, there was a whole lot of people that were like, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. And that, that was very painful because it was attached to my sense of value, mm-hmm. but it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it allowed me to have an authentic spiritual life. And what I'm a part of now is so precious and meaningful to me that um, I, uh, I'm just so profoundly gratefully moved to have a community that would be in this over the long haul with me and to have a group of people that are willing to be honest about messy spirituality. Yeah. And that was this, I had no space for that in my previous incarnation of life. There was no messy spirituality we didn't know. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I know this is an overused um, metaphor, but in, in many ways, it just sounds like the vase shattered and now you've put it back together and you like that version of it better. Yeah. I mean, some days it's not, it doesn't feel better, right? Mm-hmm. There was a reason I was disconnected from my emotions. Mm-hmm. Some of my emotions are really horrible and painful. Yeah. Right. Right. But now that I feel them, I also feel joy. Mm. I also feel happiness that comes from something other than performing. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, like I can be in relationships with people that aren't utilitarian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can relate to human beings as something other than a person to fill a seat in my church. Yeah. Right. I can, all of the stuff that is what I would call life is yeah, available it's, to me. It's authenticity. You yeah, know, at, at its at its core. Mark, thanks for joining me. Uh, you you need to be teaching, man. Like, you need to be teaching this stuff. This is really great. Where can people um, learn more about you? And I know that you also have your own podcast. So, tell yep. us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, everything about me you can find at my website, uh, markallenshelsky.com. Everything is linked from there. Um, I'm on all the socials, uh, you know, all that stuff. Some things that particularly might be helpful to folks. Um, I did a follow-up to the wisdom of your heart. The wisdom of your heart, as you can tell from this conversation, is particularly contextual for folks who grew up in the church or who are in the church. Mm-hmm. It talks a lot about the theology of emotions. So that's really a useful resource for a certain group of people, but not everyone. Yeah. And what I was discovering as I was sharing this with folks is that people who weren't Christian or who grew up in a different kind of Christian faith that didn't mischaracterize emotions this way really found the end of the book quite helpful 
uh-huh. where at the end of the book talks about how emotions work and actually lays out a process for uh-huh. working through your emotions. They found that quite helpful, but none of my theological ramblings were of any need to them uh-huh. at all. Uh-huh. And so uh, I ended up putting together a separate uh, book, which is a workbook. It's called um, the Untangled Workbook. And uh, it basically teaches that last section of the book. Here's the okay. basics of what emotions are. Here's how they work. Here's how to know what's happening in your body. And then it gives you a template to walk through an emotional experience and and kind of parse it for that wisdom. And that, I think, has actually had more impact than the original book did. Wow. There's therapists that use it with their clients. Um, there's people all over the country that buy it and then buy a replacement when they fill it up. Mm. Um, that really seems to be helping people. And then just before COVID... A friend of mine who is a trauma therapist, in fact, the guy I mentioned that was so crucial in my own recovery, he and I worked together to put together a training. We were going to do a day-long mm. live training to train people to do this. And then COVID happened and we couldn't do any live events ever. Oh, man. So we, um, we recorded it and made an online course. So um, the uh, Untangled Heart course is... Um, uh, is online. It's five hours of teaching between me and my friend Byron, who's a trauma therapist that walks through all of this. And there's a uh, journal guide, guided journaling to help you internalize it. There's downloadable notes and the whole thing that will basically, you know, if you, what you heard here sounds like it would be fruitful for you, then the untangled heart course, uh, we'll walk you through how to do this. And it's not, it's not Christian in particular. It's not mm-hmm. coming from a, you know, a particular viewpoint. It's really more talking about how, uh, how we come to understand emotions in our story, in our life, and how we uh, can glean the, the data, the wisdom that is in that sort of dashboard that we have. And um, I, it, I just feel like, man, when I look at the world that we're in, think about the last four years and the the um, the tribal uh, polarization and animosity that is between people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think back, you know, 25 years to what we used to call the worship wars, yeah. where people would get in a snit over whether or not there was a drum set in the yeah. house of God. All of those things would be different with emotional competence. Mm. Uh-huh. If I could uh-huh. understand why I'm feeling the discomfort I'm feeling, yeah. if I could understand where that's coming from and reflect on it enough that I could then have an intelligent conversation with you about what happened between us, uh-huh. so many of these things would be different. Dude, it, just deep, feels, it feels essential to me. Yeah, no, that's good. That is good. MarkAllenShelsky.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Kumar. Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit concierge or send us an email at concierge at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.